Okay, Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus. Increment 57. Epi lambanetai ala spermatos Abraham. He laid hold of the seed of Abraham. We'll be going to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16. So we begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity. It's a door that you have opened that no one can close. We pray that you'll grant us the courage to walk through it, not only to receive and be illuminated by this message, but to receive and apply it in a life that gives honor and glory to you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. On a cold day in January in 1972, in the dead of winter, and at the depth of my despair, our Lord Jesus took hold of me and saved me from so great a death. For, the, for me, this was such a great salvation and an experience of a great salvation. It was intensely individual and personal. In the nearly 49 years since that day, I've come to realize that this great salvation from so great a death is a part of a universal salvation that has been wrought by God in Christ and is being applied by the Holy Spirit to individuals even now. To people on whom this same God, this same Jesus, this same Spirit of grace is taking hold. In our current study of Hebrews, we have been seeing some soteriological terminology, terms that deal with salvation. Apalasso is the last one we looked at from Hebrews 2.15. It means freed or released. And today we're going to look at a curious verb, epilambano. Epilambano, E-P-I-L-A-M-B-A-N, long O. It means took a hold of or to take a hold of or, as we're going to see, even it means to assume the nature of in some regards and in some cases it means to take hold of with the intention of saving, helping, supporting. So in Hebrews 2.16, let's look at the translation. It can read like this. For he, that's the eternal son, has surely not taken hold of angels. And that's where that word epilambano is used, taken hold of. For he has surely not taken hold of angels, but he took hold of the seed of Abraham. Again, the word epilambano. So it's used twice in Hebrews 2.16. Now, you can just go by a translation and continue in your study of a book like Hebrews. But to me, I think we're faced here in Hebrews 2.16 with what I call an interpretive dilemma. Some translations say that the verb 
epilambano is soteriological, meaning it's relating to salvation, while others interpret it to be incarnational, that is, referring to the incarnation of the eternal word. In other words, some exegetes and translators have interpreted this verse to mean that the divine son did not take hold of angels to help or save them, but instead he took hold of human beings, the seed of Abraham, as humanity is called, in contrast to angels in Hebrews 2.16. Fewer in number are the translations that interpret this verse as declaring that the Son assumed, assumed, not the nature of angels, but the nature of the seed of Abraham. In either case, that verb, epilambano, indicates something that was necessary to the perfection of the Son, or the founder of our salvation. Necessary to the perfection of the Son as the founder of salvation. And necessary for the calling of many sons and daughters to glory. So in the spirit of friendly dialectics, let's make an argument for epilambano, meaning to assume the nature of. Again, fewer translations that I've looked at have that as the translation by saying epilambano means to assume the nature of. So it says that the eternal son did not assume the nature of angels, but rather he assumed the nature of the seed of Abraham. Now, that's certainly not untrue. In fact, it's very much true that he assumed the nature of the seed of Abraham, that he did not assume the nature of angels. But in the spirit of dialectics, let's consider a case for that. One, the larger subject of Hebrews up to this point has been the superiority of the Son over angels. This includes the prophetic word that God has not subjected future world to angels, but to human beings, and specifically to one called the Son of Man. Consequently, God's eternal Son assumed a human nature. Now, I'm arguing for that translation that says he assumed the seed of Abraham. He assumed a human nature, A, to be the Son of Man, and B, to comprise in himself all of humanity in order that future world would be subjected to all of humanity in him, and that subjection would include angels. The second reason why we could make an argument for epilambano meaning to assume the nature of, so we'll say two, the assumption of or taking hold of the nature of the seed of Abraham chimes harmoniously with Hebrews 2.14. It blends splendidly with that verse, which says that he had to become partaker of blood and flesh. To assume the seed of Abraham then is compatible with he had to become a partaker of blood and flesh 
like his siblings. And also, another verse flanking 2.16 is 2.17, in which he says that he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. He had to be or become like his brothers and sisters in every way. In other words, that the eternal divine son assumed the nature of the seed of Abraham, Hebrews 2.16, is harmonious with these two flanking statements of necessity, 2.14 and 2.17. Three, third reason why we could make an argument for epilambano, meaning to assume the nature of. Epilambano in the aorist middle, the aorist tense middle voice, as here in 2.16, can also mean to take in addition to meaning in addition to his already divine nature, he takes the nature of the seed of Abraham. It also means to take or to lay hold of, and even can mean to take possession of. Four, and perhaps most importantly, the divine son not only assumed the seed of Abraham, but he actually became the seed of Abraham. Paul calls him the singular seed. When God made the promise to Abraham and to his seed, he used the word in the singular seed. And Paul made a very clear point that that seed is Christ in Galatians 3.16, in whom all of humanity would be salvifically included. Fifth reason why epilambano could mean to assume the nature of in Hebrews 2.16. As you can see, we're looking a little more in detail at that verse than we normally would just by assuming that any given translation that we read is correct. The fifth reason why to assume the nature of ought to be the translation. Interpreting the word epilambano to mean that the son assumed a human nature agrees with the incarnational language of John 1.14. The eternal divine word, who is always God, became flesh. Now, dialectic means that you are presenting two sides or two cases. And Thomas Aquinas was a particular genius in fusing two opposites into saying that they're both in one way true or there's a middle term that is where the truth is found. So let's consider the translation that says that the sun didn't reach out to help angels, that epilambano means to reach out to help or to save. Let's consider the translation that says that the son didn't reach out to help angels, but rather that he reached out and took hold of the seed of Abraham, that is, in order to help the human descendants of Abraham and not angels. One, we'll give five arguments for this. One, translations that go that way rightly rely on verse 17b. 
where the son is said to make propitiation, another salvation term, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, not the sins of angels. Two, this translation squares with verse 18, where Jesus, the merciful high priest, is said to be able to help human beings who are presently being tested. In case you haven't noticed, that's you and me. Three, epilambano can mean, quote, laying hold of another to rescue him from peril, to help, to give aid and support. Four, the verb epilambano is used in an explicitly saving way to indicate a saving in Matthew 14:30 to 31 in direct answer to Peter's cry Lord save me Peter was sinking under the waves remember in answer to Peter's cry Lord save me Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter that verb happens to be epilambano used in a salvific way and I can't help relating my own salvation to that because the waves under which I was sinking was sinking were horrific beyond description in a kind of psychological despair and the Lord pulled me up took a hold of me right then and as the psalmist said pulled me out of a horrible pit set my feet upon a rock and established my goings Five, the fifth reason why we ought to translate Hebrews 2.16 as the Lord taking hold with intention to help the seed of Abraham and not angels. Within the context of Hebrews itself, Hebrews 8.9, Epilambano is used where the Lord speaks about, quote, taking their ancestors by the hand. And that is where the word epilambano is used, taking their ancestors by the hand, epilambano, to lead them up out of the land of Egypt. And that's a clear declaration of the saving event of the Exodus, which becomes a kind of emblem of the saving event called the Christ event. The Exodus, in turn, then, is an emblematic of such a great salvation that was effected in the sun. So you see the, the dilemma of the exegete. If someone who really wants to take the scripture seriously, you look at a verse like this and say, whoa, does it mean the former? Does it mean the latter? There's a wonderful case to be made for the former, that it means to assume the nature of, and there's a wonderful case to be made for the latter, which means to reach out to help or to save. So in true Thomist fashion, that's Thomas, T-H-O-M-I-S-T, that is following the methodology of Thomas Aquinas, something I became very familiar with when I read the thousands of pages that make up his Summa Theologia years ago, we can fuse and reconcile these two evidently at odds interpretations. And that's what I intend to do. 
If epilambano was intended to have a soteriological meaning, one related to salvation, this does not, listen carefully, this does not make it necessary that God did not help angels by helping human beings. Now, if I, could, if I saw two people drowning and I said, well, I'm, I can only help one, but I could help one, and by helping that one help the other, then I'm going to help the one that by helping, I would be helping both. And that's kind of like what's happening here. And I wish I could express it better, but that's the way it is. You see things, and then you have to say them. And between the seeing and the saying, you ask for the prayer of the saints, uh, the prayers of the saints, to give you clarity of articulation. If epilambano was intended to have a soteriological meaning, this does not make it necessary that God did not help angels by helping human beings. That epilambano is construed to take hold of, to help, or to save can mean that he didn't take hold of angels to save angels, but that he took hold of the seed of Abraham in order to save human beings and also to help, in a very unique way, angels who are evident. Yes, you can say very unique now. I uh, realize this. To help angels, but he took hold of the seed of Abraham in order to save human beings and also to help or to elevate angels who are evidently included, they are evidently included in God's project of universal reconciliation. Otherwise, why would he say that he intends to reconcile things in the heavens and on earth, invisible thrones and dominions and powers and principalities and visible things? Why would he say that he intends to reconcile the heavens and the earth together if he did not intend somehow to include the angelic beings in his universally saving project or universally restorative project. Consequently, we have this universal reconciliation in connection with both angels and humanity, in fact, in connection with all the universe in Colossians 1.16 and 1.20 compared with Ephesians 1.10. So to interpret Epilambano incarnationally, which means that it's referring primarily to the incarnation, is in fact to interpret the verb salvifically or soteriologically. You see how both of these apparently at odds interpretations are really fusing here because to interpret epilambano incarnationally is to interpret the verb salvifically or soteriologically because the incarnation of the Son was necessary in order to effect universal salvation. By his incarnation and by his death, he did save or reconcile human beings and angels to God. Some angels needed to be reconciled. He did not become an angel to save angels and men. He became a man to save men and angels. 
and all of creation for that matter. By doing so, by doing so, by saving or restoring all things, he completes the creation of all things. Remember, like 56 of the canonical Psalms, Hebrews could also be called regarding completion. Universal salvation is in reality, listen carefully to this, universal salvation is in reality the completion of the universe in Christ. And that includes the human and the angelic creation, as well as that which is called the terrestrial, earthly, and celestial, heavenly creation. The incarnation of the eternal Son is an indispensable component of the Christ event, which also includes the lifelong obedience of the eternal Son in a contingent human body, the days of his flesh. I'll say that again. Now, if this sounds odd to you and non-exegetical, please remember that we intended in this study of Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus a theological exegesis. So we'll be making some theological points. The incarnation of the eternal Son is an indispensable component of the Christ event, which also includes his lifelong obedience in a contingent human body, that is, in a body of flesh like ours, minus sin, in which he became obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. It's a contingent human body because now he does not inhabit that contingent humanity, but a glorified body, a body of glory, as Philippians 3.20 says it. So the Christ event includes not only his initial incarnation or becoming flesh, but his lifelong obedience his lifelong obedience, which culminated in his vicarious and justifying death on the cross. The incarnation is itself a necessary element of the saving act of God. But by the incarnation of the eternal Son, also known as the eternal Word, became flesh or become flesh, which implies that in the act of incarnation of the Son, God the Son was assuming the nature of all of created reality with the intention of comprising it all in himself through a vertically caused action, a vertically caused action called instaration, an act in which all of humanity and all of creation is destined to participate. We already do. We're crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. We reckon ourselves to be dead with him and alive with him. And those that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its ambitions and its lusts and its self-assertive arrogance. Instauration, then, is an act in which all of humanity and all of creation is destined to participate. It is an act in which those whom God has gifted with faith are already participating. Again, Galatians 2.20, 5.24, 6.14, Romans 6.6 and following. 
This completion of the creation of all things in turn ensures that the beginning word of Genesis in Christ, NRK, which means in Christ in the Septuagint, God created the heavens and the earth. In Christ, God created the heavens and the earth, not only belongs as the beginning word of Genesis, but it's the end word of Revelation. For making all things new is God making all things to be in Christ. For if anyone is in Christ, there's the new creation. I hope you make this connection. I'm teaching this in such a way that only the Holy Spirit can make the connection in you, not me. These such things are too high for me or for any human teacher, except for the man, Christ Jesus. In Christ, God created the heavens and the earth, NRK, in Christ, God created the heavens and the earth, is the word of God in the end. So the end becomes the beginning, in the beginning, the end. And Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end. We would do well to say then that the divine son assumed the human nature or the seed of Abraham. We'll get to that specific in a moment. The seed of Abraham isn't just humanity, but something very specific too. It is not wrong to say, and we would do well to say, that the divine son assumed the human nature or the seed of Abraham and not the nature of angels in order to save not only humans, but angels who are subjected to humans by being subjected to the Son of Man, that is, Jesus. You say, angels don't need salvation. Angels need to be helped. Why? Because a large portion of them have rebelled, and the rebelling part has hurt the elect part, the part that has not rebelled. The reconciliation of all beings, principalities and powers, things invisible and the things in the heaven, as well as visible and things on earth, helps the whole of the angelic sphere, as well as the entirety of the human sphere, as well as all of creation in all of its diachronic times. We have to get a big picture here. Without the big picture, we'll perish in this life. And I'm speaking of the so-called church. Again, if the eternal Son of God helped the seed of Abraham or human beings, that does not mean that he was not helping angels by that same act. There's more than one reason why angels are very keen, in order to use one of our British brothers and sisters' way of speaking, keen, very keen, to look into the salvation that has come to humanity in these last days. Angels are, and I love that British phrase, they are keen to look into the salvation that has come to you, predicted in the prophets, but has only come to people following the Christ event in its full reality. So there's more than one reason why angels are very keen to look into the salvation that has come to humanity in these last days. First Peter 1.12, compared with Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, 2, 3, 2, 10, 5, 9, and 9.12 of Hebrews. Perhaps the main reason for their keen interest is that they too will be profoundly affected and helped by that salvation that has come to you. In any case, the angels are most assuredly benefited 
by the son's assumption of the seed of Abraham because all ranks of angelic beings are part and parcel of the reconciliation of all things that is because of God making peace through the blood of the cross of the divine and human son of his love. That's quite a mouthful, but you'll have it in print soon. For he did not assume a nature from angels, we could say, Hebrews 2.16. But he assumed, or took upon himself, we could say, or added to himself, a nature from the seed of Abraham. This is elsewhere called the kenosis. The kenosis is not the stripping away of something, but the addition of something, humbling. The addition to divinity of humanity. So he did not assume a nature from angels, but he assumed a nature from the seed of Abraham is most certainly not a wrong statement. It chimes well or harmoniously with partaking of blood and flesh in Hebrews 2.14. Assuming the seed of Abraham, assuming blood and flesh or partaking in blood and flesh. They are congenial with one another on top of this the modern greek new testament and i like to look at that sometimes the modern greek new testament does not have epilambano but it has analambano rather than epilambano and curiously analambano means more specifically to take upon oneself and to assume So the modern Greek translators believed that this had to do with an incarnational event. Furthermore, the Langenscheidt pocket Greek dictionary of classical Greek and English adds the nuances to epilambano of meaning to fall in with and get possession of. He got possession of me. He gets possession of you so that you belong to him. He gets possession of the seed of Abraham. And that seed of Abraham doesn't just mean Jews. It doesn't just mean believers in in Jesus Christ who share the faith of Abraham. It actually is a collective term that involves all of humanity. I'll show you why presently. An exceedingly crucial correlation should not escape our notice here. Namely, that according to Galatians 3.16, mark that verse deep into your soul. Galatians 3.16, Christ himself is the seed of Abraham. Consequently, he didn't merely take hold of or assume the nature of the seed of Abraham. He became the seed of Abraham. As such, he embodied All the nations who were to be blessed in him. For as the scripture of the promise to Abraham in essence says, in you and in your seed, singular, all the nations, that's all of humanity, will be blessed. The blessing is ultimately the gift of the spirit which accompanies a universally saving act of God in Christ. When the Lord got a hold of me, he gifted me then and there that day with the Holy Spirit, whose word to me was, I'll always be here. Now, 
again. All of this speaks to universal salvation. I love that term because it's offensive today. All, when you see the animalistic behavior of people who, according to Peter, should be hunted down like wild animals and destroyed because they despise all authority. When you see the hateful and demonic behavior of people today, and then you speak of universal salvation, the two don't seem to jive. They don't jibe well together. They don't rhyme together. That's because God's love is way beyond anything you can imagine or way beyond anything I can conceive of and the things that he has prepared for those who love him are also beyond the imagination. God's love has a plan to convert the evils of the human race, not by power, but by an unspeakable gracious, merciful conversion of human evils into a supreme good by uniting human beings with Christ. Uniting humanity with Christ who united himself with humanity as the divine eternal son and who died and in the body of his flesh through death broke down every middle wall of partition. As we've seen, that includes the wall of partition between the living and the dead, the believing and the unbelieving. He is enslaved or imprisoned, rather, all in prison to the prison of disobedience in order to have mercy upon all. Think of the person you would deem to be least fitting to receive God's mercy. And that's a person who will receive God's mercy. All of this speaks of universal salvation. And still again, all of this is regarding completion. Now I'm going to let you in on something of a little secret here. In my study, in which I spend many, many hours and try to spend the best hours of my day in my study, sometimes I get a picture of a book in my mind that I've read years ago. And so I go look at the book and I have multiple colors and notes throughout most of the books I've read. And so I thumb through the book, and then I land on something. And this is what happened recently. While looking for something else, and this is, I was thinking of the term regarding completion, which should be another title for Hebrews. And while thinking of such a great salvation, and while looking for something else, I stumbled upon the following paragraph and a half in Moltmann's book, which the picture of it came in in my mind. It's called The Trinity and the Kingdom. And one of the places in there, I had a paragraph and a half in there in the middle of that book somewhere that I had a rainbow of highlighters on it. And I knew that must be significant. And I'm going to quote it to you. It's a paragraph and a half. And I think you'll be struck as I was by the use, Moltmann's use of the words completion, universal significance in connection with salvation. He uses the word completion and universal significance in connection with salvation. And so, and I want you to know that my term universal significance, universal saving significance, was not original. I read about universal significance in both Moltmann and Pannenberg. I also wrote about, 
read about saving significance, and I simply put one and one together to make two, universal saving significance, and applied it to Jesus Christ. Salvation to me, therefore, is not a soteriological doctrine, but a Christological doctrine, a Christ-centered Christological truth. But here's the paragraph and a half that I was struck with, and I'm going to give it to you in its totality. Here's Moltmann now. Both the Old and the New Testaments make it plain that the biblical belief in creation is determined by experience of the event of salvation and by hope for that salvation's completion. Both Israel and the Christian faith, each in its own way, has soteriological understanding of the work of creation. That alone could be fanned out forever. That's me. Continuing with Moltmann. And an eschatological understanding of the event of salvation. This is so because the experience of salvation is not merely the experience of my, in quotes, or our, in quotes, salvation. What is experienced is salvation for everything and everyone. A universal significance is always inherent in the particular experience of salvation. Otherwise, it could not be the experience of salvation at all. Now, before I get to the second paragraph, that was a half paragraph, I want to mention that I began today's message with saying, I was saved, I was grabbed hold of by the Lord. And it was a dramatic, personal, individual thing. But it's taken nearly 50 years for me to figure out and to see Jesus, my Savior, as the Savior of all. And that my salvation, as precious to me as it is, and our salvation as precious as the body of Christ is and our particular little phalanx to tell us thy phalanx, as precious as that is, is only part of a universal act of God wrought by God in Christ who reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. Here's the second paragraph. Quote, the universal presupposition of the particular experiences out of which Israel and the church emerged is expressed by the fact that belief in the God who liberates and redeems them is belief in the creator of all people and things. The universal goal, he says, emphasizing those two words, of the universal goal of the special experiences of God shared by Israel can be summed up by saying that the God who liberates and redeems them is hoped for as the one who will complete and fulfill the history of all people and all things through belief in creation and hope for salvation, the salvation that is experienced in a particular and individual way is understood in its universal dimensions. Stop one moment. My experience 
of my individual salvation in 1972, my individual deliverance, which was a remarkable thing. It took me years to even catch up with what happened there. Has now become and led into, as the Spirit led and guided me into the truth of the Scriptures, it has led into an understanding of that salvation in its universal dimensions. The last thing he says in this paragraph, this process has, of course, its other side too. If salvation is understood in a universal sense, then conversely, the universe too is viewed in the redeeming light of its salvation. <clears throat> so universal salvation, this is me now, is not just the salvation of all humanity, it's the salvation of the universe. Now, as far as the translation of Hebrews 2.16 goes, the incarnational option is safe, but with the following important nuance. This is how I translate it with the important nuance that I'm giving you now. Hebrews 2.16, <clears throat> for he has surely not assumed the nature of angels, but he assumed the seed of Abraham. That's how I'd say it, incarnationally. And I'm not done with it yet. Notice this does not say that he assumed the nature of the seed of Abraham, but that he assumed the seed of Abraham. This nuance gives the sense that God's eternal son became the seed of Abraham. In doing so, <clears throat> he fulfills the promises made to Abraham, which is really one promise reiterated several times in the scriptures to Abraham and to his seed, that in him, his seed, all the nations will be blessed, meaning that in the seed of Abraham, which is Christ, all the nations, otherwise known as all humanity, will be blessed, not cursed, blessed, justified, not damned, saved, not lost. Galatians 3.16 then confers with Genesis 12.3, Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 13, 15 to 16, 15, 5, 17, 7 to 8, 21, 12, 22, 17 to 18, 24, 7, notice that, 24, 7, 26, 3 to 4, and 28, 13 to 14, as, as well as Genesis 49, 10. As with the term son of man, therefore, that we found from Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2, 6b through 8a, as the term son of man, the seed of Abraham contains a double sense, individual and universal. By that I mean that the son of man is both a specific individual personage and a collective comprising all of humanity in all of its times. The same can be said to be true for the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham is the singular spermatos and speaks of one individual man, the man Christ Jesus. But it also speaks of a collective of such a vast number as to be innumerable like the stars of the vast reaches of celestial space and as innumerable as the grains of sand of all the oceans and beaches of terrestrial earth. Jesus both is the son of man and the seed of Abraham. 
and he comprises all of humanity blessed in him. The seed of Abraham has the subtle nuance of people who God has gifted with faith. All will come to the unity of faith and therefore all will have the faith of faithful Abraham which is participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God. That's another doctrine for another day to be developed by God's grace in the not-too-distant future from Ephesians 4.13. The innumerable descendants of Abraham refers to Jesus as the seed of Abraham who comprises all of humanity, blessed in him. The innumerable descendants of Abraham correspond to the indescribable excellence of Jesus Christ and of his universally soteriological and eschatological significance. I'll say that again because a volume could be written on this statement. The innumerable descendants of Abraham correspond to the indescribable excellence of one Jesus Christ and of his universally soteriological and eschatological significance. So let's look briefly, very quickly, at Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 with a working translation for now. It says, for the same reason. He's going back all the way to 2.10, the reason that he needed to suffer to be brought into completion. For the same reason. The same reason that it was fitting that he be made perfect through suffering in Hebrews 2.10. He was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a sympathetic and faithful archpriest. Now, sympathetic here, sum plus pathos, simply means that he who suffered for us on the cross suffers with us in our sufferings now. And we can run to him for help in our testing. He's been there and done that twice. So, like his siblings in every way, in order to be a sympathetic and faithful archpriest. I like the word archpriest better than high priest because it comes from the Greek word archiheros, archiheros, archpriest. And we'll use that from now on probably predominantly. To become a faithful, merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God to make expiation for the sins of the people. And we're going to learn later on, not for his own sins like the Levitical priests had to in their offerings, as we'll later learn. For since he himself, in verse 18, since he himself has suffered and been tempted while being tested, please notice that, and he he himself has suffered and been tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. Now, I'm going to explain all that later as we go, not today, but in future messages, hopefully. So the idea begun in Hebrews 2.10 still holds here. It was fitting that the founder of salvation be completed as a merciful and faithful archpriest through suffering. Here we have the first reference to Jesus as archpriest, as a priest forever later on, we'll see. This is a theme that will fill the central chapters of this homily that is so fitting for our times. 
This verse belongs squarely in continuity with the section that begins with verse 10 in Hebrews 2, which speaks of the appropriateness of the son's suffering to be made complete or to be made perfect. It means that the son had to endure a process by which he became qualified to be archpriest in a way that completed and infinitely exceeded all of the types connected with the Levitical priesthood revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. So return to the dialectic as we close. Both the incarnational and soteriological senses pertain to the declaration that the son did not take hold of angels, but he took hold of the seed of Abraham. The eternal son took hold of all of humanity for the reconciliation of all created reality. He took hold of all of humanity for the reconciliation of all of created reality. At the, and the reconciliation of all of created reality in turn is the completion of creation as a new creation of all things for eternal life in Christ, who is the Arche in Genesis 1.1, and Colossians 1, 15 to 18, and the Archegon, or founder of salvation. The founder of creation is the founder of salvation. Creation and salvation are one, inasmuch as he created all things and saves or redeems and restores all things. In your personal testimony, you can say, as I can, that the eternal son took hold of you and saved you as an individual who is invaluably precious in his eyes. All lives are precious. They don't just matter. They are precious, infinitely and invaluably so to God, including unborn ones. But if we are not still seeing things only as they pertain to ourselves, we are at least beginning to see that our individual salvation is part of the universal diachronic salvation that God has wrought in his Son and is presently making effective by the Holy Spirit. Again, the Son took hold of you and saved you as an individual who is invaluably precious in his eyes. But now it's time not to see things only as they pertain to you and as they pertain to me and to pertain to ourselves. When we do, we begin to see that our individual salvation is merely part of the universal diachronic salvation that God has wrought in his Son and is presently making effective by the Holy Spirit. Today, if you hear his voice, don't stiff-arm him. My working translation of Hebrews 2.16 reads like this. For dialectical reasons, I've expanded it to catch the double sense of incarnation and salvation as I take a lead from Thomas Aquinas' method. Hebrews 2.16 for he has surely not taken hold of 
or assumed the nature of angels, but he took hold of and assumed the nature of the seed of Abraham with the intention of a universal salvation. That's the sense given here. It's not the translation, but it sure is the sense. Again, for he is surely not taken hold of, assumed the nature of, angels, but he took hold of, assumed the nature of, the seed of Abraham with the intention of a universal salvation. Hebrews 2, 9 through 18 then reads like this. Let's look at the translation of the whole section here. Hebrews 2, 9 to 18. But we see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that, by, so that far from God he would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. For in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, because of whom and through him, through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation complete through suffering. There's suffering again. For both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one, because of which he, Jesus the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, the sanctified, brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing hymns to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God has given me. Consequently, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, he also became a partaker of the same so that experiencing death or through experiencing death, he would render Ordecambat, the one who held dominion over death, that being the slanderer, and liberate all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. For he has surely not taken hold of assumed the nature of angels, but he took hold of, assumed the nature of, the seed of Abraham with the intention of a universal salvation. For the same reason, meaning it was fitting that he be made perfect through suffering, for that same reason that he be made perfect through suffering, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a sympathetic and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, to make expiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered, there it is again, suffering, brackets the whole section, 2.9 to 2.18, since he has suffered and been tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. God doesn't tempt, but he does test. And in the test, Satan tempts. So we are tempted during our testing. But when we are, we can run to him who was tempted during his testing and yet without sin. So in the section 2, 10 to 18, we have the recurring and resounding theme of suffering. And then there's the recurrent motif, and I'll close with this. Please notice this phrase or this recurrent mention of a certain group of people. Many sons and daughters, 2.10. Brothers and sisters, 2.11. Brothers and sisters, 2.12. The children, 2.13. The children, 2.14. His brothers and sisters, 2.17. So we should be getting the idea that the completion of the eternal son is not without the completion of a collective humanity in him.
that collective humanity, proleptically speaking, is the church. But the church or the congregation in the midst of whom Jesus proclaims the name of his father and sings hymns to him is actually a forecast and preview of a universal redeemed humanity. Indeed, a universally redeemed universe in which all that has breath will praise Yahweh as Jesus to the glory of God the Father. It's this day that we anticipate, Father, with great hope, a hope that you have fostered in us and that the Holy Spirit engenders and foments. We pray that you'll grant this hope to all who hear this message and that this hope will be contagious and infectious through them to many others. We ask this in the name of Jesus, whom we see today as an all-saving great God and Savior. Amen.